0: Hello and welcome to Conversations with Writers. Talking to writers about what drives them to tell their stories. For 75 days, performance artist Marina Abramovich sat on a wooden chair before a wooden table at New York's Museum of Modern Art, her eyes connecting with strangers, one by one, sitting opposite in silence, unmoving and untouched. It was to become an epic piece of durational performance and the centrepiece for the new book from my guest author Heather Rose, The Museum of Modern Love, a fictional retelling of M. Bramovich's performance set within an ethereal, almost dreamlike New York in which Heather's characters are challenged by the questions of art to start asking better questions of themselves. Hello, Heather, and thank you for joining me. Hello, James. It's lovely to be here. Thank you. When did you first decide to fall under the gaze of Marina Abramovich.
1: Ah, I fell under Marina's gaze at the National Gallery of Victoria back in 2005. I'd been to see the... I think there was a Dutch Masters exhibition and I wandered out of that and into another room and saw a black-and-white photograph. And it was a photograph of a table and the you know, the inscription beside it said that this was a piece called Rhythm Zero by the performance artist Marina Abramovich. And she had put seventy two items on a table and they were everything from a rose to a bottle of oil, a whip, a chain, a gun and a bullet. A loaf of bread. There was a lot of range to this uh, selection and she invited people over a six-hour period to do whatever they liked to her and she would remain entirely imp- passive. And I was taken by that idea. I was aroused by the idea of the the opportunity that gave the people who came to the gallery to see themselves and to consider who they were and then there was a little end note that said Marina Abramovich also ended her relationship with the performance artist Ulay by walking from either end of they walk from either end of the Great Wall of China and I thought there's a story and that was a long time ago now it's 11 years
0: So did it take you 11 years to work on the book?
1: Mm, It did. I I initially uh, did a big download of it in Scotland. I'd been given an international fellowship, so I went as a guest of the City of Literature, the um, the UNESCO City of Literature in Edinburgh. And after my stint there working on my fourth novel, The River Wife, I... No, that was my third novel actually at that point, um, The River Wife. I went out to Skye, where I used to live, and... I was in a little hotel overnight and I was on my own so I had dinner on my own in this very beautiful little hotel and I had this concept of a woman sitting across the table from me telling me her life story and I went oh that's it that's it and I ran upstairs and I wrote until about four o'clock in the morning and then I thought oh it's going to be a quick novel it's going to be Easy from now on, but actually it was really difficult. I wrote four other novels in between, but
0: three of those are children's books. Did you need, actually, to step away from the world of Marina to write these other books, to almost clear yourself from her work? Because it is a very confronting work. I think uh, it was very difficult
1: working with a live person at the centre of my book and I was deeply conscious of the respect I needed to pay her uh, for her life, for her art, for her generosity in giving me such um, such an opportunity
0: to present her in literature
1: with no caveats
0: at all. So she did give you, you actually sought her approval?
1: I did. I asked her if she would agree to being a character in the book and uh, she said yes. And again, no caveats, no restrictions. And so I, and she's a very powerful woman as we, those of us who know her work know. So it was difficult to have her at the centre of the novel. The other thing that happened over the 11 years was I think I needed to become a better writer. So I finished The River Wife, and then I wrote The Children's Series. And The Children's Series, which I write with um, my my dear friend, Danielle Wood, who's also an amazing award-winning author, and we write under the pen name of Angelica Banks. And that gave us this enormous freedom. And we've had such a lot of fun over the last six years writing those books. But the The sense of fun that I brought to the writing in children's literature, I realised I needed to learn to be much more free in my adult literature too and that gave me a sense of playing with more of the characters' lives and the characters also in the Museum of Modern Love were difficult to write because they have very complex backgrounds. So I ended up writing a lot of their backgrounds, a lot of their backstories in order just sometimes to write one or two sentences or a simple dialogue interaction.
0: So finding the characters themselves and what defined them and and motivated them.
1: Yes, that's right. What were they all doing there? So compelled by this work, the artist is present. And as you know, not everyone sits. Some of them are just observers from the sidelines
0: why did you get drawn though towards the nature of her durational art these extraordinary performances over a history that require such recourse of strength from both mind and body Mm. is it because of your own affinity for being driven towards your own acts of endurance over your career
1: um, yes, <laughs> and, and, and <laughs> I'm, I'm leading sure. <laughs>
0: very much with this question towards the fact that this obviously informed your uh, the work you did about rituals and Native American work in your earlier novel.
1: That's right. Uh, I, in my twenties, I participated in Native American rituals in America, um, very sacred ceremonies uh, with the Lakota, and in order to live through those. Uh, it's essential to both have physical rigor, but also a sense of um, inner purpose and strength, and and a spiritual sense. And that was a huge part of my life, and has informed my life, uh, obviously ever since. And in the ceremonies, there's a there's quite a degree of suffering because we don't eat and we don't drink, um, and we have flesh offerings, and it's excruciating. And so. Within a day of being out in the sun, from sort of, you know, we start at sunrise. I just want you to know I've never talked about this in public before. <laughs> um, we start at sunrise and it's the middle of summer. And so we start at, you know, 4:35 a.m. And the ground is really cold because often we're at high altitude. And uh, the process then takes us through the day until the end of the day through to sunset so we dance all day with no food and no water and we also have sweat lodges three times a day. So after about the first day you go into a different space in your brain and your mind. You start to expand beyond the human condition and I think when I saw Marina's work at that moment in the NGV and read about that I went, oh she had to go somewhere to do that. I wonder what that meant. And initially I couldn't find any research on Marina because it was all written in other languages and it was, she was very well known in her own world but in the general population, not at all. So it, I had to imagine that character for a number of years and it wasn't until I got to um, have the privilege of the Mona Library in Hobart that I began to read about her and then it became evident I couldn't fictionalise her. I had to use her at the heart of the novel.
0: And you went and sat with her on four occasions Mm. while she was performing. When you sat with her, therefore, did you feel that affinity that you just talked about? Completely.
1: It was... uh, The gaze is very powerful and, I mean, we're having one right now across these microphones. To sit with a complete stranger in silence and simply have eye contact is a deeply private experience. It's as if we both get a mirror and also a sense of the other person. There's a dance and it's the unseen and the thing we don't talk about in human life nearly enough. It's the unseen, it's the 70% that we can't see. And something happens energetically. And so whether she was seeing me or whether she was so deeply in trance, because by that stage, I think I first sat with her on about day 36, Um, and you can only imagine the physical rigour of having sat on that chair for her for 36 days. I tried to do it a number of times when writing the novel. It's really painful. Within about 20 minutes, it gets very, very unsettling to have to sit. And then after about 40 minutes, it becomes for me at any rate, quite uncomfortable. So whether she was in a trance or whether she was seeing me or whether she was seeing me energetically, whether I was seeing her energetically, the room disappeared, the huge atrium there at MoMA just disappeared. At first sitting down on the chair, I was aware of the audience and in fact I hadn't even thought of them as an audience before I sat on the chair. But suddenly I was aware that I was in the in a big square with all these people around at the perimeter and... They are. There are voices, there are noises, there are people coming and going, there are drifting sounds and of course because it's in the atrium you get all six floors of the shuffle of people and the sense of movement and energy floating around the building and then the focus on the gaze and stay in the gaze and that first time I sat, I think I sat, it's recorded and the only reason I know it is because it's recorded, was 46 minutes in gaze with her and I had no sense of that being that long. I thought it was maybe 12 minutes, maybe 20 minutes. I don't know. It it, it ceased to be any sort of importance very, very quickly. But the feeling of being in the gaze and then noticing what happened to my mind, that's what was like ceremony.
0: Well, I read somewhere that Marina said that the individual who sits with her, they're being filmed, they're being photographed, they're being watched by thousands mm. of people and the only place to escape is into themselves.
1: That's a lovely way to put it. I wasn't conscious of the camera. I, w- I really wasn't conscious of it. I didn't know what it was going to be like, of course. I had waited in a queue the day before and hadn't got to sit with her and then the next day I got there very early and so my whole anticipation was the being present with marina was being in proximity to marina and what does her face look like and what does her hair look like and that sort of stuff but sitting on the chair first of all the chair didn't move there was no way you could move the chair so it made me understand why that dynamic was always so set and and then the fact that it's such a process she lifts her head and looks at you and and then you're in the process of what that gaze is. So it delivered the opportunity to both consider where she was at, but also where I was at. And the room and the cameras and the lights, all that completely disappeared for me. In fact, I didn't even know that we were being photographed until another day when I was there and a, and a student, um, a PhD student, uh, showed me all the Flickr photographs and she was going through them and looking at her own and saying how she was so disappointed that she never looked relaxed and she never looked comfortable. And I was like, oh, my goodness. You didn't just this is... turn to her and
0: say, it's not all about you.
1: <laughs> but it was fantastic to know that some people were considering that when they were sitting, that they were being immortalised by Marco and Ellie's well, photographs.
0: You, you do capture some of that in the book as well. There are mm. characters... Who come away disappointed, or they they haven't experienced, and they're they're worried that the light wasn't right when they cried. Exactly. Yes, and they
1: that seemed quite extraordinary. But of course, some people it will all be about ego, so that's what they get.
0: And, And that is also some of the questions that Marina wanted to raise, which was, is it about you? Or is it about me mm, or is it about mm. those who are watching from the sides? D- tell me about the atrium because I, I think I understand that that was the original working title of the book. Mm, it originally. was for a long
1: time because the atrium has the double meaning, of course, of being a room at the centre of a house but all, or an architectural structure, but also it applies to the heart and the atrium, the chambers of the heart.
0: And this would fill with people who would sit. And you you take us there in the book, which Mm. there are characters who spend day after day. And in a place like New York, which is such a bustling, busy, active uh, city, Mm. people are grinding to a halt and putting their lives on hold to watch a woman sit and look at another person. Why do you think that was?
1: Maybe it was the only place of rest in New York City for three months it was extraordinary i watched mothers and little children and the children would just plonk down on the floor and get totally absorbed in watching these two human beings and children would replicate it they they'd find a friend and try and do it themselves and the number of people that just walked in and went oh and then stayed and stayed and we know what that's like in an art gallery you know we give Jackson Pollock 30 seconds if he's lucky and we gave Marina hours and hours and hours I mean I think 850,000 people came to the show and it was rare to see someone just move right through or walk there were quite a few that walked in and out but in the the rest of them there were you know there were 50 70 90 100 there was a it was as if there was a tide coming through in a way to sort of pay homage to something about the human condition
0: and tide's an interesting term to use because you do refer to the noise of that crowd on mm. the entrance as an ocean mm. and that Marco, the photographer, who is the, who was the real photographer. Mm. The he really is himself. In yes. the he
1: gave me permission too. Well, I yes. was going to ask
0: you, you know, just finishing off on the ocean, it sounds like there was a roar of people on mm-hmm. arrival and that it mm-hmm. built and built towards that 75-day exit period.
1: Yes, yes. I had to leave again by uh, late in the forties the days and I came back to Australia and then could watch it on the webcam and it was remarkable watching this sea of people and on the webcam you got the square with the table in the middle and you're sort of looking down on it but you watched more and more feet around the edges the density of the crowd and then Marco's photographs at the end of every day more and more and more people until the last day That room was packed and all the balconies for those people who know MoMA, all the balconies were lined with people watching this extraordinary event where at last Marina stood up.
0: So from this experience, you have taken people like Marco and Dieter and Marina herself and the people from her life and you've put them in the book. So you sort them all out, I would imagine, to get their permission...
1: Uh, Dieter is based on, uh, isn't based on anyone. Oh. He's my completely imaginary version of her agent curator, who's actually a man called Sean Kelly, but I didn't dare to ask Well, there you him. go. <laughs> you have completely
0: taken me on the story. <laughs> <then>. <laughs>
1: No, I went and interviewed Sean, uh, in fact I went to interview him very precisely through The Artist Is Present because I never wanted to speak to Marina, it would be far too intimate to speak to someone I felt that was going to be my character. So I went to speak to Sean and we had a long interview and uh, and then I gained permission for Marco to be a character in the book and also to, for David Mar- Marina's assistant. And they both very willingly agreed and, again, gave me no caveats whatsoever. And I, I haven't heard back from them yet, but it, its uh, I think they'll be pleased with it.
0: When did research move to interest, move to almost obsession?
1: Mm. I think when I got the writing residence at Minor, I... I'd been working in a sort of cupboard uh, before the gallery was built. It was all in a warehouse. All the collection and the staff were in a warehouse out the back of Moona, which is a suburb of Hobart. And,
0: and Moona is the, the the gallery of modern and old.
1: Yes, old and new art. Old and new art. In Hobart, the From magnificent David Walsh. David Walsh Gallery. And uh, so I'd been working in their storeroom going through books because they were still packed, everything was packed, ready, ready to go into the, the new gallery. And then when the new gallery opened, they offered me a room beside the library. And at that stage, I then got a wall where I could track every day of the 75 days who really sat in real life, who sat in my book, where everyone was, where all my characters were, what was driving them. The And so I did a big white wall of everything that I needed and then also having access to all the fantastic books at the library... Uh, not just Marina's books but other books that I could r- respond to and that made me get quite obsessive. And also there's something about the Mona energy, I have to say, that made me get quite obsessive out there. And the room was quite a dark little room, which is perfect for writing for your computer screen, and I had a view out over the river and I could just get locked away in there for hours and hours and hours and hours. And that, that was big. That was the gift of this book
0: what's it like when you do lose yourself to the writing process you mentioned at the very beginning that you wrote till 4 a.m when that idea clicked Mm. what do you feel where do you go
1: well our children's books talk about that that's what the children's series is about i go to the place my characters are so i lived in new york with them for all those years every time i'd Get into it. I mean, I I find that a very easy transition. Sometimes it's much harder to come back Uh, It's I I've always had that as a child and and on into my adult life I've always found it very easy to leave here to go into my imagination I always say that writing is sort of a form of madness because it gives me such license to explore all sorts of other things and so the minute those sentences start unraveling for me usually I get a sentence and I'll get a sentence that's from early in the book, and I get, I and that will take me somewhere and give me a picture. And then I also always get the last scene. Strangely, I've been given that gift. So I get the first sentence and then the first scene, and then I always get the last scene. So then my job is to make an arc Connect between the those dots two. between the two. Yeah, and I never know what's in between. And it's deeply strange because. Things just add up that I could never have
0: imagined. But that must be a thoroughly enjoyable, lovely experience. Oh, it's delicious.
1: I am at my happiest when I'm writing. Writing and painting both give me exactly the same feeling of immersion.
0: Is it the discovery that comes from the research that you enjoy or the discovery that comes from the imagination?
1: It's the imagination. What I love is that the research creates sort of building blocks that I don't even know um, they're as if they're sort of out there, and there's a sort of magical thread that's joining everything. I always call it cryptic orienteering. I do the I do the work, I do the research, but then I allow my imagination to work on the orienteering, and strangely, everything comes together. It's as if the very, when I know a book is finished now, that after seven of them, um, that there's a sort of domino effect that happens at some point where the last bit goes in. And it might be a word, it might be a sentence, it might be moving a scene back or forward in the book. And then this feeling, almost as if I can hear it, this brrrr happens. And I go, that's it that's it and usually that happens after an editor's had a really good go at it let me tell you it's not just me it takes a team to write a book. Heather you had
0: the perfect opportunity to say it's all first draft and done.
1: (laughs) Oh no 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 please all you writers out there and budding writers it's nothing but sheer hard work and about that book that book I think there's probably been 70 drafts.
0: Well you gave character to the muse Mm. within the book and Mm. and that's why i talked about in the introduction that it's almost a dreamlike quality to the new york and to the story itself because we drift in and out of these very real characters um we have these very honest characters then we have the muse when does your muse find you regularly
1: (laughs) (laughs) um when i'm cooking uh she or he finds me always when i'm driving it's a bit of a nuisance. I wish they would invent an app that it would. I could just speak, and it just recorded and sent it straight to my computer. So that when I got home, I, it's the interface that's always difficult.
0: I think they're called executive <coughs> assistants. <laughs>
1: yes, yes. Why don't we have writers' grants for executive oh, assistants? Gosh. I like that. And so, cooking, driving, walking, four um, o'clock in the morning, three, three, any time between three and four thirty. The muse often wakes me up with very precise information, useful time, very useful
0: time. Well, so long as they're being precise at that hour. There's nothing you want. Yes,
1: yes. I I got a very important part of my next book the other day and it it woke me up and it gave me such fright that I said, oh, no, no, no. (laughs) Sort of 3.30 loudly in the morning.
0: What sort of discipline do you employ to actually maintain this energy that's required to be a writer and to have, you know, you you do Um, other things. You've had um, a very successful business career, um, both in marketing and and, in hotels as well. So what is it, where does this discipline come from and how do you apply it?
1: Uh, I think very early on in my life I decided that uh, I wanted to do a lot with my life and that every day was an opportunity to do something with my life. So I have, I I know people have called me driven in the past, but I think I'm just excited. I get excited by life. And so when things show up as ideas, I get excited by that. So that gives me energy. I don't have to find energy for that. It nourishes me. Being creative nourishes me. If I wasn't creative, I would flounder. And in fact, in the periods of time where I haven't been able to write, uh, that's been very, very difficult. And the words build up in my head until I actually have to go and write things down and empty my brain. So it's it's the fabric of my being.
0: And how often do you seek out other like-minded people? Because you spend time at Mona down in Tasmania mm. with David Walsh, who is, by his own admission, a very unique character. Uh, and then you've got people like Marina, et cetera. Do you seek these people out or do they find you?
1: I am very lucky in Tasmania to have an extraordinary writing community, an extraordinary artistic community. My world is peopled by writers, painters, sculptors, um, good thinkers. It's a marvellous, place in Tasmania. I think because the sea change and uh, the sea changes have brought something fantastic and we also have had a wellspring of creativity down there for so long. We get more time in Tasmania, we get better light, we get better weather for writing in my world because we get the seasons. So I am really enriched by the community of creative people in Hobart and and in Tasmania and I I think I can never underestimate how much that has helped me become the artist that I am and then in terms of the other broader the broader world of artists and creators I've just been very lucky I've, I've been very lucky that people have either found me or I found them and when you refer to me in the world of marketing and advertising which I did for many many years I know we're always told in business to network, but I never liked doing it. I always thought that if I walked into a room and I felt just attracted to someone to go speak to someone or they felt attracted to come speak to me, and it didn't matter if I spent the whole evening talking to them, if we really connected, that that was actually what mattered in life. I'd rather have rich, deep relationships than many, many flimsy relationships.
0: Marina Abramovich always wanted to be famous. Mm, Didn't she? And so that's quite a contrast with your own attitude then, which Mm. you just discussed, which is that she is attracted to the most powerful people in the room. What do you think this experience, the artist is present, gave her?
1: Mm, I think it gave her several things, one of which was that the retrospective of her work was on the sixth floor. And she'd never had a major retrospective before. So it must be extraordinary to see your life laid out in in a whole floor of the most exquisite gallery in New York. I don't mean to dismiss the Guggenheim there or or the Met, but it is an extraordinary gallery Moma and the, root, the way that show was curated was extraordinary. It was so beautiful and it was visceral. Her life as this powerful, fragile, vulnerable but brave woman was so visceral in everything, in that transition that you talk about from very early age right through to there she is downstairs. You can just lean over the balcony and see her still at work. And it was... I think that must have been amazing for her uh, to see her life's work upstairs and to still be sitting there, still doing the work. And then, of course, what was fascinating was that they didn't know that people would come and sit opposite her, which amazes me now and amazes all of us, of course. But it's true, you never know if a work is going to compel people or not. And so many people came and so many people were moved and no one could have anticipated that so to see her work move that many people i think for her that must have been a relief i suspect on a number of levels because she has been you know an acquired taste for a lot of people and she suddenly became you know a figure in the in the in the ordinary world people started to know her in ways that no one would have had access to her before. She became a household name.
0: The the overnight success of 40 years struggle.
1: That's right, exactly.
0: The Museum of Modern Love is very much a love letter to Marina's work and you take us through a series of examples of her history. So the pieces from the rhythmic pieces up to her most recent work of that time. But it also has enormous compassion for the characters. And a lot of these characters seem to be looking to Marina near the end, as that is the moment of reflection where they're finally ready to deal with this, either loss or love, etc. Was that very important to you that it had a sense of compassion and empathy?
1: I didn't think about that at all.
0: Really?
1: I didn't. Um, the characters just did what they did. And uh, as as you know, uh, it took me a long time to understand what was motivating each of them. And it's interesting as a writer that um, for me I've found it's hard to get out of the way sometimes. So I remember in The Butterfly Man, which is about the disappearance of Lord Lucan, I really wanted... Henry Kennedy, who is the character of Lord Lucan, I wanted Henry Kennedy, who's assumed a a new identity so people don't, the police don't find him. I wanted him to come to a sense of forgiveness with himself. I I wrote that book so many, the ending of that book so many times, and I kept trying to get him to come to forgiveness, and he wouldn't. He just wouldn't. He couldn't. It wasn't right. He he could not forgive himself, and. I learned such a lot from that process. So in this book, I didn't try to even make them come together. (laughs) That's the greatest thing about it. I simply had these characters and I delved deeply into them. I wrote a lot of back... I think of it as the backstory. I wrote a lot of backstory and then they each started to take their place. And the magnificent Ali Laveau edited this novel and I need to give her huge acknowledgement because... The book came to her, uh, you know. Probably eighty percent of what you read there is exactly as it was, but the twenty percent was about moving some of the parts of the novel around, which has given it much more a sense of that coming together, and that was really helpful because for me, I can't see it by then. I get snowblind, and so the right, you know, the the editor comes in and sees it fresh and says this, 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 and it's always marvellous for me to work with a great editor. So the fact that it's done that I am delighted and also a lot of people have said that it helped them for the first time to understand what Marina's work was about. They never understood Marina's work and suddenly they understand what Marina Abramovich's life has been about and therefore why her work has evolved the way it has. And I had no sense of that. I just knew that there was a really compelling story of a woman who had totally given herself to art and the Constructor, The Artist is Present, came about actually five years after I started the novel with the woman at the table. So that was another very eerie moment. When I actually sat with Marina the first time, I went, I've been sitting writing her at this table for five years. And it was, that's one of the bits of cryptic orienteering, one of the things that lines up, which I could never, ever, ever have anticipated.
0: So therefore, did you get an ending to your own story? by sitting with her because you finally had a moment my own story personally well with her if you've already spent five years dipping into the world of the artist and getting to know her and wondering what's behind her and then to finally sit and look at her did that perhaps give you any sense of closure or greater understanding
1: it certainly gave me a sense of greater understanding of how trance-like her experience was I hadn't really I mean it was visceral I could imagine that you know you you watch the lips of Thomas where she's on the ice blocks and she's whipping herself and um, cutting the star into her stomach and I knew that that could only have been done because she's in some kind of trance like state the same as the masturbating under the stage you know all of those things those reproductions again very very hard to do unless you're in a very focused very um very mindful state But yes, it was remarkable to be so physically close to her and it didn't give me a sense of completion with her and I'm not sure I even have that yet because she keeps working and she keeps doing things and while my book is complete, I'll always be a fan of hers. I'll always be interested in what she does next and... I'm also interested in how people respond to her. So th- the book has created a great deal more of that for me. So people reach out to me now and talk about how they're responding to her work. and I think, oh yes, this is a sort of on- this is a conversation that's become part of my life, and I never knew that would happen.
0: We've talked about big personalities and you made mention of this particular personality earlier and I want to come back to them, which is Angelica Banks, (laughs) which is your your alternative, which you share with your co-author Danielle Wood, But I am particularly intrigued by these children's stories, more because you go to schools dressed as Angelica Banks.
1: I do. I do most of the school visits on my own because Danielle runs the writing department at the university, so she's very busy. And I get in, we both, we have matching costumes whenever we go anywhere together. So together we are Angelica Banks and we have very beautiful red wigs, long, very glamorous red wigs. We have electric blue, long uh, electric blue coats. We have sort of, um, you know, six inch glamorous heeled boots. We have um, sunglasses and we go, we arrive as the character Serendipity Smith, who is the mother of the of the daughter, Tuesday McGillicuddy, who's the heroine of our novels. So, so um, Serendipity Smith is the most famous writer in the world. She's based on J.K. Rowling, of course. And she dresses in this incredible outfit day after day with all sorts of different wigs and coats and boots. And she does this so she can be a normal person at the end of the day. She ostensibly lives in the on the top floor of a very beautiful hotel in the city, but she then de-robes, de-wigs, and goes home to be Sarah McGillicuddy at home. So it gives her an opportunity to, you know, be the J.D. Salinger. I, I would like to be, for sure. And um, and so it's just a beautiful... Um, it's a beautiful opportunity for theatre when we arrive at the schools, but also uh, the children then get the challenge. So I'll, I'll say to them, so, you know... They all go, oh, you're Angelica Banks, and it's so lovely. We're like rock stars, and um, <laughs> I get a sense of what that is. And then they say, uh, we say to them, would you rec- do you think you'd recognise us if we took off our wigs and hats? Would you recognise us? And they go, oh, well, we don't know. So we do. We de rope and get down to the sort of just the ordinary black clothes and the you know the ordinary flat black shoes, and and they don't, they can't recognise us. They don't. And it's fantastic. And it's just this brilliant bit of imagination right away that gives them an opening into, ah, oh, things are not always what they seem.
0: And so the character just evolves in front of them or dissolves. Mm, dissolves in yeah. front
1: of them. That's right,
0: wow. yeah. Does that, has anyone ever said the back of the class and gone, put it back on?
1: Oh, <laughs> yeah, the parents. <laughs> But if you've spent a lot of time in a wig and an electric blue coat and very high boots, you will know you get very hot.
0: (laughs) I can assure you I haven't yet.
1: (laughs) You've missed out. It's just a personal preference right now. But it was beautiful at the launch of the third book and a number of people came dressed as serendipity, so a number of adults. It was fantastic. There were... Yeah, there were serendipities around the room.
0: And are we expecting more books in that series? You just finished the third most recently. Yes,
1: uh, we're having a little break. Danielle needs to finish some adult writing. I need to get on with my next novel for adults too. I think that series is complete, I have to say. I think we did a a really good arc and it's time for something else. And we have an idea and I've written the first chapter of it, but I'm not saying anything about that yet.
0: (laughs) And I can only assume that was written at three or four in the morning as well.
1: It, it was. And the beautiful thing about writing in tandem is that Daniel will write the next chapter and I'll write the one after that. And for a little while, we'll go on like that in evolving the story. And then we start writing into everything. And until we get down to nobody knows whose sentences are whose.
0: Heather, it has been an absolute joy to speak to you today. So thank you so much for coming in.
1: Thank you, James. It's been delightful.
0: And further to our conversation, Heather was recently announced as the winner of the prestigious 2017 Stella Prize. You can find the Museum of Modern Love in stores and online, and follow Heather Rose on Twitter. You can also follow us, at ConversationsWW. This has been James Ricards. Thank you so much for listening.